45. Give only temporary relief, and interfere with the action of the heart, but we use treatment that builds up the system, removes the cause of the difficulty and restores the nervous system and all the organs of the body to a normal and healthful condition. In some cases we advise treatment in our institution, where we have every facility in the way of electrical appliances and many other aids that can only be employed by the personal attention of a skillful physician. These aids are more fully described under the head of nervous exhaustion and a reference is also suggested to what we have to say under the heads of paralysis and locomotor ataxia, headaches or neuralgic pains, due to local irritations, as uterine disease, stricture, neurotic or nerve tumors, pressure of trusses, eye strain from weakened eye muscles, or lenses that need the help of proper spectacles, require for a permanent cure the removal of the cause, sciatic neuralgia. One of the most common and painful forms of nerve irritation, is particularly amenable to treatment by the modern means of cure used in our practice at the Invalids Hotel. We find, as a rule, that severe headaches and neuralgias are but the foreigners of more serious conditions, and are therefore deserving of special attention. They should be corrected as early as possible, before any organic changes had occurred. Paralysis OR palsy, locomotor ataxia and kindred affections. Paralysis is an affection characterized by loss of muscular power or by the sense of touch, taste, sight or smell becoming impaired from injury to a nerve by accident or disease. The disease is sometimes due to simple lack of nerve force or power. This may come from interference with the blood supply of the nerve centers, as in hysterical palsy and reflex paralysis. Frequently the power of speech is affected in this way. Ability to remember and difficulty in pronunciation of certain words being the most common. Certain affections of the womb and its appendages, in women, and, in men, stricture of the urethra, adherent prepuce, or foreskin, with wounds and injuries, many times of nerves and organs remote from the paralyzed points, cause the loss of power, the causes of paralysis are very numerous, whatever destroys, or impairs the natural structure of nervous matter, or whatever interferes materially with the conducting power of nerve fiber, or the generating power of the nerve centers will produce a paralysis, the extent of which will depend upon the amount of nervous matter affected. Thus paralysis may be due to disease of the brain arising from apoplexy, to abscess, softening, syphilitic or other tumors, or epilepsy, to disease of the spinal cord, or marrow, to disease of the structures which surround the spinal cord, producing pressure upon it, to injury or compression of a nerve, by which its conducting power it impaired, to the effects of diphtheria, hysteria, or rheumatism. It may also be due to poisoning of nervous matter with opium, lead, arsenic, or mercury, or to the retention of poisonous substances which are generated in the living body and which should pass off through the excretory organs, as the elements of the urine and bile. Members of consumptive families are very prone to paralysis. We also find that the disease is often the result of some nervous strain, or overexcitement the overindulgence of the passions is particularly a fruitful source of injury to the brain and spinal centers. An angry man or woman uses of more nerve energy in a few minutes than would be sufficient to serve the muscles with stimulus through hours of toil. The young, in a natural indulgence of the sexual passions, waste the vigor and energy of maturity. Sexual excesses must be put down as among the most prolific causes of this terrible malady. Ignorance shields no one from the consequences of violations of the laws of health, the passion for wealth with its ceaseless toil, continuous strain, and rapid exhaustion of the nerve forces, usually brings its debity into the same condition of discord as does the abuse of a stimulant. 
for a time the system will repair and bolster up the weakness, but the longer the day of reckoning is postponed, the more serious and terrible is the collapse. Such individuals need only an exposure to cold, or an overindulgence of some kind, to suddenly precipitate a paralysis, general paralysis. This term is applied to paralysis affecting the arms and legs. In this form of paralysis there is generally more loss of motion than of sensation, and the mind is usually more or less affected. H-E-M-I-P-L-E-G-I-A, or paralysis of one side of the body, is generally spoken of as a stroke of palsy, sometimes only one extremity. The arm is affected. Only occasionally is the face involved. In the majority of cases the mind is affected, the memory being poor, the sufferer becoming melancholy, peevish, and fretful. In paralysis of the right side, there is sometimes a curious forgetfulness or misplacement of language, the patient being unable to think of words to express his thoughts. This condition is called aphasia. It is usually the result of some injury or disease of the brain. Almost invariably the side of the brain opposite the affected half of the body. In some cases it is due to a wasting, or softening, of the brain substance, on account of insufficient nourishment, a deficient supply of blood, whilst in others, it is due to just the opposite condition, an excess of blood, producing rupture of some blood vessel, transudotions, and pressure, paraplegia, or paralysis of the lower half of the body, is the result of disease of the spinal marrow. The paralysis may occur suddenly, but, in the majority of cases, it comes on slowly and insidiously, with weakness and numbness of the feet and legs, or with tingling and a sensation resembling that produced by ants creeping on the surface of the skin. By degrees the weakness increases, until there is complete loss of both motion and sensation in the feet and legs. The lower bowel and bladder are generally involved, and as a result, the patient suffers from constipation, and retention and dribbling of urine. Although completely paralyzed, the patient is often tormented with involuntary movements and cramps in the affected muscles. Paraplegia may be caused by various injuries of the spinal cord, by congestion, degeneration, or hemorrhage, by pressure from thickening of the sheath of the cord, or from tumors, or from disease of the bones and cartilages of the spinal column. Paraplegia may also be produced through reflex action, by an irritation or injury to some organ or part of the body distant from the spinal cord, thus, irritation of the skin, or of the bowels from the presence of worms, or disease of the bladder or of the womb, may produce paraplegia, locomotor ataxia, locomotor ataxia, or creeping palsy, is also called progressive paralysis, this affection consists of a disease of the nervous matter in the posterior columns of the spinal cord, it usually affects first the lower part of the cord, and those portions of the nerve matter that supply the muscles of the legs. In other cases it first affects the portions of the spinal cord that supply the arms. In most cases of this disease there is an early stage in which the patient suffers from lightning pains, as they are called. These are of a severe, stabbing, boring character, very sudden in their onset, and at times so serious as to have induced suicide. These paroxysms, in the milder form of the disease, are not so severe and are readily controlled by anodynes, they may affect the stomach, and be mistaken for dyspepsia, or the rectum, and be taken for fissure or piles, at times they affect the bladder, when the symptoms are not unlike those of stone or cancer, in many cases we find the patient has been treated for a long period of years for rheumatism, sciatica, or neuralgia, when the real disease has been this progressive paralysis in its earlier stage, 
Sometimes the disease takes the form of spermatoria or impotency, in other cases it is manifested in weak eyes, disturbances of vision, or cross eyes. Sooner or later, there appears the peculiar paralysis of the disease, which consists of more or less numbness of the feet and legs, and, in the later stages, of the hands and arms, sometimes of the face, as a rule. However, the patient finds difficulty in properly maintaining his balance, and in walking his movements are tottering. Like a man partially intoxicated, it is difficult for him to maintain his balance and walk with his eyes closed. If the arms are affected, their movements are uncertain. In guiding a needle or in buttoning or in buttoning the clothing, there is an inability to move the hand with rapidity and certainty, or to any portion of the face or body if the eyes be closed. The eyes and attention must be constantly directed to the motion that is about to be performed, or it is imperfectly done. The brain centers in this case supply the weakened action of the spinal cord, and the stimulus to the muscles is directed by the intelligence instead of being automatic, as in health, and due to spinal action. Still later, the voluntary movements become spasmodic or jerking. The neuralgic pains often become very distressing, there is often a sense of constriction around the limbs or body, as if they were encircled with tight cords. In extreme cases locomotion becomes impossible. The patient is unable to bring the hand to the mouth, and the speech may become impaired, articulation being difficult and imperfect. In all cases there is more or less loss of sensation in the lower limbs, the patient generally being usable to distinguish between two points and one, even when the two are a considerable distance apart. The inability to feel the contact of the ground or floor with the feet occasions the difficulty in walking. The causes of this disease are somewhat obscure but unquestionably exposure to cold and dampness, and over mental work, are largely instrumental in its production. Scrofula and syphilis favor its development, while abuse of the nervous system, such as results from overindulgence of the animal and reproductive instincts, are frequent sources of the nervous changes that lead to ataxia, shaking palsy, shaking palsy, or paralysis agitans, is an affection dependent upon degenerative changes in the nervous centers. It is characterized by a tremulous agitation, or continual shaking, beginning in the hands, arms or head, and gradually extending itself over the entire body. The disease progresses slowly, but when far advanced the agitation is violent, and the patient swallows and masticates his food with great difficulty. In an advanced stage of the disease, the body becomes bent forward, and the chin almost touches the breastbone, the tremor which early in the disease only occurred during the time the patient was awake, now continues during sleep, and not infrequently the agitation becomes so violent as to awaken the sufferer. General treatment of paralysis. The indications of treatment for the various forms of paralysis are to remove the causes, if these can be determined, and rouse the functions of the paralyzed parts. Measures should be adopted to remedy the morbid conditions upon which this affection depends. Keep the skin clean and healthy. Promote the circulation of the blood, especially in the paralyzed limbs, and encourage healthy nutrition. These ends may be best attained by the daily employment of stimulating baths and frictions upon the surface. As much regular exercise as the patient can bear without fatigue should be taken in order to favor the preservation of the appetite and strength. Care should also be taken that the bowels are evacuated regularly every day. The circulation through, and consequently the nutrition of the palsied muscles may be aided by having a strong healthy person knead and manipulate them. These manual movements upon the surface of the body will often excite muscular sensibility, similar to that awakened by a weak phoretic current. 
the internal medicines should be such as to regulate the general functions of the system. The use of these remedies must be directed by the skill and experience of those who are professionally qualified to administer them. When the patient has been able to be under our personal care at the Invalids Hotel, we have found the employment of mechanical movements and manipulations, applied by means of a variety of machinery, employed in this institution, together with the use of the equalizer, or large dry cupping, or vacuum apparatus, to be of the greatest benefit. These several machines and apparatus furnish a perfect system of physical training, thus rendering valuable aid in the cure of many forms of obstinate chronic diseases. A few of these machines are shown in figures 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, also see page 32 of appendix. The general practitioner often endeavors to overcome the inertia of the nerve centers and nerves by means of specific irritants, with the view of exciting the power-producing function of compelling the weakened and disabled centers to evolve more power, by such stimulation and forcing, he places a burden on the weakest parts, the compulsory and ineffectual endeavor of the weak parts to act in response to such stimulation is very liable to make a new drafts upon the capacity to act, which only end in exhaustion of the little remaining power instead of its reinforcement, cases which were previously curable by direct and appropriate means, are thus forever placed beyond the reach of remedies. No powerful stimulating or depressing medicines are indicated in any of the various forms of the affection. In paralysis it should be our aim to improve local and general nutrition, to relieve local congestions and inflammations, to produce absorption of deposited matters, and to force an abundance of blood through palsied muscles, from which they may derive a proper supply of nutriment, and to which they may give up the products of waste. All this can be accomplished by massage, mechanical movements, Regulation of the atmospheric pressure on the body, baths, and proper physical culture. In paralysis, there is a diminution or total loss of the contractile property of the muscles to which the affected nerve fibers are distributed, consequently the capillaries and small veins are not compressed, as in health, and the blood is not forced on through them towards the heart, hence there is a backing up of the circulation, passive congestion, and all the evils incident to that condition ensue. Mechanical movements properly applied to the affected limbs, or parts of the body, accomplish the same results as contraction of the muscles. They compress the capillaries and veins and thus force the blood on through these vessels towards the heart. There is a constant pressure in the arteries, hence the flow of blood in the capillaries is always towards the veins, and, when it gets into the veins, it is prevented from flowing back by the valves in those vessels. A proper circulation of the blood through the disordered parts is thus effected, and, as the result, they receive an abundance of nutriment, and their waste products are promptly carried away to the excretory organs, by which they are separated from the body, the deposits of fatty matter between the muscular fibers are absorbed, and the agglutinated fibers are separated, as proof of these statements, it has been found by experiment and observation that there is an increase of temperature in the parts subjected to this action which must be due mainly to an increase in the chemico-vital changes that are superinducted by the nutritious elements of the arterial blood, particularly that element which is supplied to it by the inspired air, oxygen. All the products of waste are increased, the skin becomes more soft and moist, showing that the amount of matter eliminated by it is increased, the urine becomes more abundant, and the relative amount of urea, its most important constituent, becomes greatly increased. The amount of carbonic acid gas exhaled is increased, and further evidence in the same direction is furnished by the very marked increase in the inspired reacts, 
necessitated by the increased demands for oxygen, the local increase of the circulation incident to properly applied mechanical movements, must produce a corresponding diminution of blood in other, even in remote, regions of the body. Thus this treatment, by its revulsive effects, is capable of relieving various disorders of the head, chest, digestive organs, and pelvis. Nowhere, however, is the effect more satisfactory than in affections of the brain and spinal cord, whether characterized by loss of power, of sensation, or by neuralgic pain. Any portion of these nerve centers suffering from congestion, will find prompt relief in mechanical vibratory movements. The movement cure which we advocate is not a Swedish movement cure, nor anything akin to it. It is the application of remedial forces by complex structures, which combine a variety of mechanical powers. The inventions are solely American, by means of this machinery, which is driven by steam power with great velocity. We are able to apply soft, pleasant, rapid vibrating movements over the surface of the body, and thereby increase the circulation of blood through the parts, raise the temperature, and excite pleasant sensations. The movements can be applied by our ingeniously devised machinery to any part of the body through the clothing and without the least exposure of the person. They can be administered in a great variety of ways, by light, quiet persuasions, by gentle frictions, by rubbing, by oscillations, by kneadings, by circular movements, in fact, by an almost endless variety of reciprocating and alternating motions, which, if described, would convey to the mind of the reader but a faint conception of their remedial value. Vibratory motion not only establishes activity of the circulation through the skin and muscles, but it also affects profoundly the circulation in the important and vital organs of the body, it is thus capable of overcoming torpidity or congestion of the liver, spleen, and other deep-seated organs, without the depressing effects which sometimes follow the administration of powerful medicines. It has not been our purpose to literally explain, in detail, the methods of applying vibratory motion in the treatment of paralysis for popular experiment, since to be successful one should become an expert not only in this mechanical treatment, but also in the diagnosis of the various forms of paralysis, as well as familiar with their causes, pathology, and remedial requirements. Thus, to be successful in the treatment of paralysis and other nervous diseases, by the application of motor forces with our ingeniously contrived machinery, the cost of which is beyond the means of most invalids, one must exercise great discretion, gratifying success. Not only is vibratory motion as a remedial agent rational and philosophical, but our experience has fully demonstrated its marvelous effects in the treatment of paralysis in its various forms, and also in the cure of other chronic diseases. We have cured cases of infantile paralysis which had resisted the skill of the most renowned physicians in our country. We have treated those who could not stand or bear the weight of the body, but who have been so far restored as to be able to walk and run without assistance. Writers and telegraph operators paralysis, or cramp, we have cured in a few weeks time, club feet, spinal curvature, and other deformities resulting from paralysis, have been successfully treated in our institution, in short, our success has been most flattering in all curable cases of paralysis, and it is such experience that induces us to hold out encouragement to those who are afflicted with paralysis and other nervous affections. Vibratory motion is a desideratum of priceless value to those who are afflicted with diseases of the nervous system, as well as to all others who need a gentle stimulus to call forth their latent energies and improve their physical condition. Recapitulation. Motion. 
properly transmitted to the human system by mechanical apparatus, is transformed into other forms of force identical with vital energy, by which the ordinary processes of the system are greatly promoted, it increases animal heat and nervous and muscular power to the normal standard, it removes engorgement or local impediments to the circulation, the electrical induction produced, renders it a most efficacious remedy for paralysis of all kinds, it removes interstitial fluids and causes rapid absorption and disappearance of solid and fluid accumulations, it is a powerful alterative, or blood purifier, increasing oxidation and stimulating excretion, it diminishes chronic nervous irritability and promotes sleep, it hardens the flesh by increasing muscular development and improves digestion and nutrition, animal juices, OR extracts, the use of animal, Nerve and gland extracts has proven of surprising efficiency in the treatment of paralysis and locomotor ataxia. They furnish a pabulum in concentrated form for the nourishment and restoration of the weakened nerve cells and fibers. In the vast majority of cases, we have been able, by the use of these recently discovered curative agents, when assisted by other means at our command at the Invalids Hotel and Surgical Institute, to arrest the progress of these nervous affections, hitherto so generally considered incurable and bring about restoration of the paralyzed functions and a renewal of lost power. These comparatively new remedial agents have been very thoroughly tested by us. Their merits are more fully considered in a preceding chapter of this treatise, under the head of treatment for nervous exhaustion, or debility, epilepsy, fits, epilepsy, or falling sickness, is a disease which is characterized by attacks of sudden loss of consciousness, together with convulsive movements of the muscles. The paroxysms occur at irregular intervals, the periods between them, in some cases, being only a few minutes or hours, while in others, several months elapse. There are two classes of epilepsy, first, the general form, with a convulsion that usually involves all the muscles of the body simultaneously. It begins suddenly with little or no warning, commonly with a cry or scream. The convulsion may last several minutes and is followed by a deep sleep for some hours. Second. The local or Jacksonian form in which the attack begins with a peculiar sensation in some particular region of the body, either in one extremity or one half of the face. This sensation is followed by a twitching of the muscles of the part. The sensation and spasm extend or advance gradually to other parts. Consciousness is not usually lost, though it may be when the spasms culminate in a general convulsion. Great weakness generally follows in the parts convulsed, gradually passing away. When the attack begins on the right side of the face it is associated with an immediate inability to speak. Symptoms. In the severe forms of the disease, the subject suddenly loses consciousness and falls. There is rigidity of the muscles, which causes a twitching of the face and limbs. The eyes are turned up, and there is foaming at the mouth. In the severe form of the disease, the respiration is arrested, while in the milder attacks, the breathing is difficult, slow, deep, and snoring. With the commencement of the spasm, the tongue is sometimes caught between the teeth and severely bent. During the paroxysm, the countenance changes from a livid hue to dark purple. The convulsion continues from one to three minutes, and is followed by a deep, sighing inspiration. The subject then sinks into a deep sleep, which continues for half an hour or longer. When consciousness is first regained, the subject appears confused, stupid, and usually complains of headache. He has no recollection of what has occurred during the attack. He pronounces words indistinctly, and if he attempts to walk, he staggers like a drunken man. Sometimes, 
Several attacks occur so closely together that there is no interval of consciousness between them. In some cases, there are premonitory symptoms, such as giddiness, drowsiness, headache, and irritability of temper, which warn the subject of an approaching paroxysm. Occasionally, a wave of cold commencing at the feet and proceeding to the head, is experienced. This is called an aura. When it reaches the brain, the subject becomes unconscious, falls, and the convulsion commences. If the disease be allowed to proceed in check, it almost invariably leads to great impairment of mind, insanity, or paralysis. Causes. The predisposing causes are an hereditary tendency to the disease, and everything which impairs the constitution and produces nervous prostration and irritability. Syphilis. Thymoses. Sexual abuses. Uterine disease. And the use of alcoholic liquors are prominent predisposing causes. Many of the causes treated by us have been brought on by masturbation. Others are the results of injury to the head. Often fracture of the skull is followed by epileptic attacks. The exciting causes include everything which disturbs the equilibrium of the nervous system. Indigestible articles of food. Intestinal worms. Loss of sleep. Great exhaustion. Grief. Anger. Constipation of the bowels. Piles. And uterine irritation may be enumerated among such causes. Convulsions of an epileptic character may also be induced by a poisoned condition of the blood, from malaria and disease of the kidneys or liver. Treatment. When the time of an expected paroxysm approaches, great care should be exercised that the patient be not suddenly attacked while carrying a lighted lamp, or that he does not fall in some dangerous place, strike upon a heated stove, or in some similar way inflict great injury. If there be warning symptoms before the attack, the subject should carry a vial of the nitrite of amyl in the pocket, and, when the premonitory symptoms are felt, two or three drops should be poured on a handkerchief and held about an inch from the nose and inhaled, until flushing is produced, or a burning sensation is felt in the face. During the paroxysm, the subject should be laid on the back, with the head slightly elevated, and the clothing about the neck and waist, if tight, should be loosened. If there be sufficient warning, a folded napkin, or a soft pine stick covered with a handkerchief or cloth, should be placed between the double teeth, to prevent the tongue from being bent. During the fit, the head may be bathed with cold water. A person who suffers from this disease should avoid everything which tends to excite the nervous system, or increase to any great extent the action of the heart. The sufferer should go to bed at regular hours, and take at least eight hours sleep. The sleeping room should be large and well ventilated, and the patient should lie with the head elevated. All indigestible articles of food should be avoided and the diet should consist principally of bread, vegetables, milk, and fruits. Meat should be taken but once a day, and then in very small quantities. The use of alcoholic liquors and coffee should be avoided, and tea only taken in small quantities. The bowel should be regulated with dry pierces pleasant pellets and injections, if necessary. A thorough bath should be taken once or twice a week. If the attacks occur at night, the body should be sponged before going to bed with tepid water, to which should be added sufficient tincture or infusion of capsicum, or red pepper, to render it stimulating to the skin. The causes, if they can be determined, should be removed, and those remedies administered which relieve nervous irritability and cerebral congestion. If due to worms, the proper remedies should be given, if to phimoses. The subject should be circumcised, if to pressure on the brain, from fracture of the skull. Trefining should be practiced, and the depressed bone raised. There are no specifics for this disease. Each individual case must be treated according to the condition presented. 
The nostrums advertised extensively over the country as specifics for this disease, while they may, in some instances, prevent the attacks for a short time, irritate the stomach, impair digestion, lower vitality, and permanently injure the system, often rendering the disease incurable. They deceive the sufferer, leading him to think that his disease is being cured, until it progresses so far that he is beyond the reach of any treatment. As a rule, the longer the disease progresses, the more difficult it is to cure. Epilepsy has by many physicians been regarded as incurable, but our extensive experience has convinced us that by an appropriate course of treatment, the vast majority of cases can be cured. The animal extracts, or juices, herein more fully described under the head of treatment for nervous exhaustion, have proven curative in some cases that have resisted other remedies. This treatment requires the personal attention of a physician skilled in its employment. It is also of first importance that the extracts be properly made. We have discovered several new remedies, which undoubtedly exert a powerful curative influence over this disease, but it is necessary to vary the treatment so much in different cases that it would be useless to enter further into details in this treatise. Surgical treatment. A considerable proportion of those cases of epilepsy, termed Jacksonian, have been found to be caused by new growth upon, or in the substance of the brain. Sometimes cysts form as a result of small hemorrhages, or of spots of softening from clots in the cerebral arteries. Other cases are due to a small spot of hardened tissue or an inflamed center of irritation in the outer gray matter of the brain. The majority of these forms of disease can be exactly localized in a small area of the brain, and may usually be traced to a blow or fall on the head, or to fracture of the skull without depression. The discovery of the fact that such results of injury will produce localized spasm has naturally led to the conclusion that similar products anywhere in the brain may give rise to epilepsy. In these cases trefining of the skull and the removal of irritation from the brain has been followed by the most successful results. It is seldom a serious or dangerous operation, but very few deaths having resulted in the practice of good surgeons in many hundreds of cases, and these were individuals who were not favorable for operation, and in whom it was undertaken as a last resort in these cases of epilepsy. Due to injury, the operation is fairly safe, and in carefully selected cases that have not been allowed to run so long as to bring upon the brain a general epileptic tendency, the results of operation are good and the procedure warrantable. See testimonials from a few of the many cures effected by our specialists.